So we're talking about what it means to exceed, and we've got two more of them left. We've spoken about all kinds of uh, ways that we can get better and climb higher and get stronger and, uh, and strengthen ourselves in our relationship with God. And each of these messages and each of these principles of how we exceed has had some kind of counterintuitive thought to it. Because we generally believe that if we want to get better, we have to work harder and we have to climb higher. And we think that exceeding means uh, that we get more and we grow more. And it's all tied up in, in phrases like more and bigger and better. But as we kind of get to our penultimate, uh, our second from last um, message in this series, I want to remind you that in the way of Jesus, the way to the top is found by going to the bottom. The way of becoming great before God is found in the way of serving. Over the years, I've been with a lot of uh, younger folks who want to get married. Like Judy. Where's Judy? Judy, get married in like three weeks. Very exciting. We're excited for you. She had her shower yesterday. It's always which, like a wedding shower, not like a... <laughs> Maybe you had one of those today as well. I know. Anyway, <laughs> that's a rabbit trail not to go down, right? But one of the conversations, you know, I often do some kind of premarital encouragement, counseling, that kind of stuff. And sometimes people will say, uh, give us your best marriage advice, right? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm really, you should ask Tracy. I'm still learning. <laughs> She'll tell you that. But I'm true. Thank you for that affirmation. <laughs> but, 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 but in those moments, you know, I'm kind of caught. What, what is the best thing that I could say to folks who are entering into this kind of relationship with a, a new kind of commitment? And of course, tons of things to say, but the thing that I say most often is that if you want to succeed in your marriage, if you want to have a healthy marriage, then the best thing that you can both do is you need to choose to lose. You need to choose to lose to your spouse who loves you. There's a relationship of trust there, and you need to choose to lose, right? Has anyone experienced that? Because what happens so often is that when you win in a relationship you actually make your defeat harder later on. Does that make sense? You guys tracking? Amen. Come on, there's got to be a whole lot of amens around this. I mean, probably more for the husbands from the wives, right? But, but so often, right, if Tracy and I again to a little tip, the best thing I can do is say, hey, you're right, and back away, right? Even if she's not. Right? <laughs> right? The best thing I can do, so, I mean, well, she is 99% of the time, right? Even if the best, you know, e even, if, even if the other person's right, the best thing we do is kind of step away and choose to lose. Because what happens so often, right, is that we'll fight to win the argument at the cost of losing some of the relational trust, right? It's almost like we, we win the war to lose the battle, right? Um, th this, this whole... Um, win the war to lose the battle actually has a name. It's called the Pyrrhic victory. Have you heard of that? No. And King Pyrrhic um, was a king in B.C. 279, right? Little, little, little guy, little army decided to take on the Romans, right? 
which is probably never a good idea, right? And so they're going to this little war, and he gives it everything he's got, and he defeats the Romans in this war. But the cost of defeating the Romans was so staggering that when the Romans came back a few weeks later, right, with the, the, the huge size of their army, they destroyed these folks. They won the war, but they lost the battle. Sometimes in our relationships, the best thing that we can do is to choose to lose. And I want to put it to you today that when we talk about exceeding, when we talk about getting better, when we talk about strengthening in our relationship with God, the best thing we can do is not to try harder, is not to do more, is to choose to lose. Or to put it a better way, to choose to surrender. Because so often we think that we can receive and inherit and grab all the things of God just by our own brilliance, but it doesn't work that way. The way to exceed in our relationship with God is to choose to surrender. To say, I'm not going to fight on this. I'm going to let you win. Even my best will only get me a little further forward, but your, your best, that will accelerate me to things that I, I, I cannot imagine because they're so beautiful. So often in our relationship with God, we think we've won the war, but we lose the battle because we're so selfish. So often in our relationships, we choose to win when we should be losing, and therefore ultimately the defeat is, is costly, right? And so in this passage of Scripture that I, I want to read, and honestly for me, I think it's one of the most formational passages in Scripture, Jesus reminds us, that if we want to be great before God, if we want to receive everything that God has before us, we need to choose to lose. We need to focus on the war. Am I saying that the right way? Which is bigger, a war or a battle? Win the battle. Win the battle. Battle, right, okay. You know what I meant, though, right? Because if you didn't, that just turned the whole thing upside down, right? Think long term, not short term. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we haven't won a war for a while. <laughs> so anyway, let me get into the scripture. Now I've set up the thing. So uh, scripture is found in, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, right? Uh, Matthew 20, 20, uh, you know, we could say, say that, um, you know, this, this is one of those chapters that we need to get 2020 vision from about what it means to follow Jesus because he is changing our perspective on, on everything. So Matthew 20, 20, how, how do we choose to lose? How do we choose to surrender? H how do we exceed by conceding? Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him, Jesus, with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What is it you want? Jesus asked. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your kingdom. So here's the story. Jesus is just told his disciples 
and probably the mum was in earshot, that some things were going to change real soon. That Jesus, who'd started to build this kingdom, was going to die. And so she thinks that there's going to be a, a leadership vacuum And she can't think of anyone better to fill that leadership position than her two sons. Now, this lady was the wife of Zebedee, mother of James and John. She probably traveled with the disciples. We know she was at the cross. Rumor has it, although this is just kind of speculation, that she was actually Mary, Jesus' mom's sister, which would make her Jesus' aunt, right? So she's got this kind of closeness, this in with the group. And she thinks that she can leverage her power and her influence to do what's right for her boys. She kind of reminds me a little bit of Marie Barone. You guys know who Marie Barone is? Right? Everybody loves Raymond? Pushy mom? Sons? This clip is kind of like the modern-day version of this story. So what they were saying... Is this a joke? Excuse me. Dear FBI Agent Garfield, I'm writing to ask for your understanding. You have an interview this morning with my son, Robert Barone. mother here is the Marie Barone of her day, right? There's a job opening coming up, and she thinks that her boys are the perfect candidate for it. So it says she kneels in reverence 
for Jesus, before Jesus, and says, I need something, I, I, I want a favor, I want my boys to be at your right and left hand, and that means that in this succession plan, when, when you die, if you're going to die like you say you're going to die, I, I, I want them there. Now, there's nothing wrong with her desire. There's nothing wrong with a mom wanting the best for the kids. In fact, moms and dads should want their best for their kids. But I think the lesson from this first part of the story is that when we're standing before Jesus, when our son is looking for an FBI position, our responsibility is to hold our hopes and to hold our dreams loosely. You know, sometimes we can hold on too tightly to what we want, right? This is my goal, and I'm going to go after it with everything. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Unless that goal that you're giving everything for isn't the goal that God wants for you. And because we're not God, when it comes to our ambition, our goals, the things that we want to exceed it, we need to hold them lightly. So often in our life, there are some good things that we can do. Some good things that we give ourselves to, we give our time to, we give our money to. But they're not necessarily the great things that God has for us. Because we don't understand the mind of God. Well, we don't fully understand God's best for us. And what happens if we drive too far, too fast after our stuff, we miss out on the wonderful things that God has for us, right? Marie Barone, she needs to say, hey, Robert, good luck if you get it, great. But if not, that's okay too. I don't need to, to advocate for you. I want the best for you, but I'm going to hold things loosely. I think as the story develops, and Jesus is so, so gracious here with this, this kind of pushy woman, and he respects her dearly. But I think her story reminds us to hold things loosely. Let's want what God wants. Let's choose what God's best is, rather than trying to force through our own. If we want to exceed... We've got to let go a little bit of our hands so tightly on, on, on the mission, on the project, on the goal. Well, we need to say, Lord, we want your way, not our way. Your will, not my way. John the Baptist, I think, modeled this beautifully. Just before Jesus' ministry starts, right? He comes out of the wilderness and he's a strange guy, but he's got quite a following and some disciples. And he looks at Jesus and he says, I've got to decrease so that you can increase in me. One of the reasons why we try too hard to exceed but never actually get where we want to is maybe the blessing of God who's holding us back because he's got something better for us. And so when we come to God, it's right that we pray. It's right that we petition. It's right that we beg God. It's right that we, we ask for the desires of our heart, but we do so holding things loosely, right? Because He's in charge, not us. Second thing, Jesus answered, verse 22. You don't know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink from the cup that I am about to drink? The disciples, James and John, looked at him and said, um, yeah, we, we can do that. Now, it's interesting that even though it was the mother who brought up the request, it's uh, the disciples who, who answer. Now, history suggests that because Matthew was written uh, a little bit later, by this time, um, the, the, the kind of disciples had been kind of like, had this like holy aura around them. And it was actually them who asked in the, 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 the first place. But here they are saying, yeah, we're... We're able to drink the cup. You know what I love about this phrase? They had no idea what they were saying. Do you ever get like that? Right? Uh, someone says to you, hey, can you do that? He says, sure, I know exactly how to do that. And then we just kind of go, yeah, Jack. <laughs> right? And then we quickly kind of um, jump on Google, right? There's this, there's this great scene uh, in, in the office. Did anyone watch The Office? where there's this big, imposing uh, new boss comes in, and Jim, the character, um, the, the guy, the new boss says, hey, can we have a rundown? Would you make me a rundown? And Jim goes, sure, I'll give you a rundown. And he spends the rest of the day walking around asking people, what's a rundown? <laughs> right? That's where, the, that's where the disciples are. Jesus says, hey, can you drink from the cup? And they say, sure. But they've got no idea what the cup is. And the cup is different for everybody. A little bit later in the story, we reveal that they can't drink the cup that Jesus is going to drink because the cup that Jesus was to drink from was a cup that only Jesus could drink from. It, it was the cup of, of suffering, the cup of the cross. And, and so this word cup, this metaphor cup, talks about the sacrifices that, that we have to make to do what God has called us to do. For Jesus, that cup was the cross, right? And no one else could go to that cross in the same way that Jesus went to that cross because none of us are perfect. None of us are, are, are sons of God in the way that Jesus was. These two disciples had, had cups to drink. James actually became a martyr himself. He died for the cause of Christ. John... Uh, he, he, he died probably of natural causes, but throughout his life he had to go through all this pain and this struggle and this, this suffering before he died on, on Patmos, the, the island there, just as he was writing Revelation. The second thing I think that this story is saying that if we want to exceed by conceding ourselves to Jesus, not only do we need to hold our hopes and dreams and stuff loosely, but we need to be prepared to drink from a cup, a cup of suffering. I'm pretty sure, and I certainly hope for most of us, for all of us, that that cup isn't martyrdom. But if we are to faithfully follow Jesus, there will be some suffering in our path. There will be some struggle. There will be something that happens that requires a sacrifice. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He's just about to drink his cup. 
and he's wrestling with what to do. He's really struggling. And he says, God, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. And then he says, not my will, but yours. And so this cup represents not what we want, but our ability to sacrifice we want what we want for what God has for us, right? There are times in our life, there should be times in our life every day where we're saying, not my will be done, but yours. It's when we surrender our will that we discover God's. It's when we start, from, start drinking from, from the cup of sacrifice and, and suffering that we start to find life and we start to exceed at the very things that we want and we need. This is so counter to our, our cultural goals and the American dream. It's not, how can I get the most? How can I become the best? It's what do I need to sacrifice? What do I need to give up? What small act of suffering do I need to encounter so that I can receive the the fullness of all that God has for us? If we want to exceed in life, we must hold things loosely. Secondly, we must be ready to surrender our will, to drink from the cup. You know, there's this, this thought kind of wandering around the church that says, hey, once I've, I've followed Jesus, everything's okay. I, I've received his grace. I'm, I'm set for life. Put me on this pleasant train all the way to heaven. But the Christian life doesn't work that way. And if we think it does, we're just cheapening the grace that we receive. To receive grace, to receive the purpose and plans of God is beautiful and transformative and it's the best of everything, but it comes at a cost. The grace that we have received was costly for Jesus and it is for us as well. If we want to exceed, we have to concede as we surrender to Jesus. We hold things loosely. We're ready to surrender our lives. Verse 23, you will indeed drink from my cup. We've all got a cup. But to sit at my right hand and the left is not for mine to give. Instead, it's for those who have been prepared by my Father. Verse 24, a little time later. And I love this. This is such a middle school boy conversation. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Now, you'd like to think that they were righteously indignant, right? This is, oh, how can you talk about Jesus dying? You know, how inappropriate that you would uh, politic for power. But the real reason why they were indignant is because they were jealous. They wanted those spots that the other two had, had, had positioned for. 25, Jesus called them over because he heard their, their one-upmanship and their desire to climb. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles 
lord it over the Gentiles. You know that those in high positions act as tyrants over them. He's kind of reminding them of where their behavior will lead them. He says, if you keep down this jealous, climbing track, you are going to become the new version of the very thing that you dislike. And he says, not so with us. If you are going to follow me, if you are going to lead in my kingdom, if you are going to exceed in this life, then we've got to turn everything upside down. He says, look at the way that they lead. Look at those who are hungry for power. Look at the oppression that you have felt because of them. In this kingdom that I'm leading, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to turn the whole thing upside down. He says, let me tell you what this looks like. In my kingdom, contrary to their kingdom, whoever wants to be great must become the servant. Whoever wants to become first must become the slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I wish the church understood this. We live in a, a world where for the past 30, 40 years, the church has been hungering for power. Power in the world. And that doesn't ever bring the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is all about laying down our power. It is about becoming powerless so that he can become powerful in us, right? It's about choosing to lose. It's about conceding what we want so that we can exceed in the things of God. Whoever wants to be great must be your servant. You know, being a servant doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a servant position. I think really it's all about having a, a servant posture. That no matter what your position, no matter what your station, no matter where you are, you say, with my life, with my influence, with my leverage, I'm going to help and serve another. He says, when you start to serve, that's when you experience greatness. It's when you act as a slave that you start to exceed. Counterintuitive, right? We think, I've got to climb, I've got to do more, I've got to be better. But Jesus says, no, 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 you've got to turn things upside down. If you want to be great, you've got to be served. He says that if you want to be great, if you want to be first, you've actually got to run to the, the back of the line. Again, the problem with the disciples is that they were jealous. They were trying to uh, push themselves up the pecking order, right? 
Jesus says it doesn't work that way. I'm not looking to see who's put themselves at the front of line to see who's going to be great in my kingdom. I'm looking to see who's at the, the back of the line. Following Jesus, exceeding with Jesus, really is a, a race to the back. It's a race to the bottom. And if we want to exceed at life, we've got to view things from this, this other paradigm. We've got to turn things upside down. That way doesn't work. That model, that paradigm, that only hurts people. But in the kingdom of God, we're going to flip that upside down. So the one who is the least will be considered the greatest. The one who has nothing will be, be exalted above all. Man, that messes with, with our wiring. But the good news is, Jesus says, you have an example to look at as to how to do that. And in all humility, Jesus says, that's me. He talks about himself in a third person because he's so, so, so humble. The Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. I, I, I'm, I'm not looking to win. I'm not looking to exceed in your way, in your world. I'm not looking to, to put myself on a pedestal. Don't make me a king that, 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 that you, you serve and gets, give all the accolades to. Put me at the back of the line. Because that's how my kingdom works. Look to me and then you will exceed. Follow my ways and you will find your way. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We exceed when we concede. And we concede before Jesus by holding things loosely, right? Not my will, but yours. We concede by saying, I'm prepared to make the sacrifice. I'm prepared to give up the surrender. We exceed by, by turning things on its head. By saying these structures of, uh, of power that oppress, that's, that's not the way. But then Jesus wraps it up by saying, you exceed by looking to me. One, by looking at my example. And then secondly, by looking at my cross. He says, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul and theologians over the ages have kind of used this word ransom and turned it into lots of fancy theological phrases, substitutionary atonement, things like that. But I like the word ransom. Because we were being held hostage by our own will, by our own definition of what it means to exceed because of our sin. But because of our selfishness that was consuming us and feeding us. But on the cross, Jesus came 
and gave himself as a ransom. And he paid the price for us. The price of his life for our life so that we could be free and that we could exceed in a whole different way than we thought. If we want to be great, if we want to exceed in our family, in our relationships, in our finance, in all the stuff that we've spoken about, the best thing that we can do is concede ourselves to Jesus, right? We hold things loosely. We prepare to make the sacrifice. We view things differently. And then we look to Jesus, his example, and his cross. His example and his cross.